Wow. That's a lot of history you just laid on me there. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, just but going, going back, I just have to say when I, when I first, you started off with talking about slide and slave. When I first heard that, I, I mean, I remember it's like, you know, when JFK was shot or whatever, they talk about where were you? I remember where I was and the first time I heard slide, that's how bad that track was. It blew you away, didn't it? Ah, oh, completely. I mean, these guys, I mean, the talent that these guys had coming out of Dayton, Ohio, was just immense. I mean, I cannot put a dollar sign or a value on them because to see these guys in the studio play the bass or the lead guitar or even sing or even, I mean, not only to say Junie, but there was Sean Sandridge, there was Johnny Wilder, there was Roger Trotman, there was Mark Wood, there was Mark from uh, Slay. I mean, these guys just went on and on. So when you saw one, and they all had a different sound, a funk sound that was a different sound. You know, he wave had that English funk sound and uh, Slave had that kind of rock, black rock funk sound. And I mean, it was just a, it was an amazing time that should be captured on film. So see so people can see what truly happened in Dayton, Ohio, from little bitty West Dayton, Ohio. I mean, a, a, a little part of Dayton is less than five miles long and less than five miles wide, had billion-dollar groups come right out of that, come right out of there. And that, that you know, when you think about Motown, you think about Detroit, Detroit's a big market. When you think about the Philadelphia sound, you think about Philadelphia, you know, those are major markets. But Dayton's not a major market. Right now, like I said, it's the 64th major, it's the 64th market, and when I was in it, uh, radio back in the 70s, it was a 49th market. So you see it's dropped a lot. So when you think about that, um, you see something that is it's almost a miracle of happening because nobody thought it would happen like it did happen. And we're still talking about it today in 2019. You know, it's funny, um, looking back when I was a teenager and really deep into all of those groups, I was buying all of those records, sometimes traveling from where I live by bus, you know, to go to record stores that would get it when they first came out. It was like a drug for me. Um, yeah. But living in Los Angeles at that time, I didn't realize, I didn't put it together that all these groups were coming from the same region, you know. Um, of course, Ohio players, but, you know, they may as well have been like from outer space to me because I had never been outside of Los Angeles. So right. I didn't. But Los Angeles is a major market. You know, yeah. it's the number two market in the country. So if, if not being outside of Los Angeles is not nearly saying not being outside of West Dayton, Ohio. Because <laughs> that's like walking across the street, man. I'm just I'm telling you. So that's what makes it so unique that that magic was in one little area of one little area. You know, but then again, when you think Wilbur and Orville Wright had a bicycle shop in West Dayton and look what they did, you know, so, you know, some so great things out of the city. Well, and even beyond that, I mean, not far away, if you extend to like Cincinnati with Bootsy and the James Brown stuff and the Isley Brothers and just, you know, that entire region, 
Cincinnati was a great music market with the, uh, we know that when we were teenagers, we would go down to uh, a club and watch uh, Little Roger, who was about six years old, and Sugar emulate a guy by the name of Jimi Hendrix, who was out of that same region. And we, again, just as teenagers, we were just enjoying some good music. But, you know, a funny story, James Brown called me at the radio station one day and asked me if I had received his record. And I said, no, sir, Mr. Brown. He liked to be called Mr. Brown. And I said, no, sir, Mr. Brown, uh, I haven't. He said, well, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do to Charles. I said, no, you don't have to do anything to anybody. I told him to send me the record, and um, I'll be happy to get a listen to it. He said, well, what time do you get off work? I said, 5 o'clock. He said, well, meet me at the airport. So I get my little girlfriend and um, another couple, and we go out to the airport, and James Brown was supposed to be in about 7.30, and no James Brown. And then it dawned on me I was in the wrong place because James Brown has his own little jet and I was over at the commercial side. So I had to go over to the private field. I get over there about uh, 8, 8, 8, 15. And the guy up in the booth told me that there, there was no James Brown that he had scheduled from LaGuardia. And so my friends said, oh, you know, you didn't pull one on us. So about 9.30, we leave and go back home. The couple leaves and goes back. And my little friend, you know, she... She's she's down for the evening. By 11 o'clock, the phone rings, and I answered. They said, Turk, where are you at? I said, I'm at home. He said, we out here waiting on you. I get up and drive back out to the private side of the airport, and here this beautiful Learjet sitting there and had JB on the side of it. He said, come on, let's go. I'm like, excuse me, where are we going? He said, don't worry about it. It cost me $5,000 to put this plane in the air. So we get in this 12-seater Learjet with two air pilots, just me and him. And and I, I jokingly said, I said, I know you into this black thing, Mr. Brown. You know, I can even have some brothers fly this jet. He said, he said, Turk, this jet cost me $4 million. I ain't found no brothers to fly this thing. <laughs> so I don't know where we went. I can't tell you where we went. We came back. About five in the morning, I staggered off the plane from drinking that cognac, and he gave me a song, and it was Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud. And I came back, and when I told my little friends what had happened and what they missed, of course, nobody believed me, you know. But I had that kind of relationship with James Brown, and we had a good friendship, and Whenever he came into the area of Cincinnati, he would actually send a limo down to pick me up, and I would go in the studio with him. And again, another amazing, amazing musician in the studio and on stage. I mean, just amazing. And uh, had that same relationship with Barry White. When he would come into the area, I'll never forget, uh, Barry White and I were having dinner in uh, at the Stouffer at the Hilton in Indianapolis, and he introduced me to a Scargo, and we were drinking cognac. And if you know anything about Barry White, 
big guy had a big appetite. And I'm trying to eat this these snails in this hot garlic butter. And they look like they were moving. <laughs> they look after two or three of them, they look like they were moving. I'm telling you. And man, I could not keep up with Barry White, but he was another great guy that would out Rick James, as wild as Rick James was. When he would come into the area, I was kind of afraid to hang out with him because Rick was a crazy. I mean, Rick would have a sheriff after after a while. He would do some crazy things, but Talented musicians. I mean, Dayton was just a mecca of talent. And I, I did an interview oh, uh, in 2018 with a local television station. They asked me, do we ever think um, that can be brought back, that era can be brought back? And, and I said, I don't think so. And the reason why uh, the guy in Dayton that is using the soul of Dayton is trying to do that is going to be in federal court with me before the year's out because I own the soul of Dayton, like I said, and he took it over the last six years and trying to make money. And he's showing up in the rating books, but he doesn't have that magic we had back then. The um, radio stations are not mom and pop stations. Many of them aren't. You know, they're corporately owned. And so who makes the decisions comes down from corporate. It doesn't come down from, you know, local. Even though the guy in Dayton is trying to recopy some of the things I did back in the 70s. But, he, you know, as long as I live, because of the way he went about it, um, he's got me to continue with. And I'm a force to be reckoned with. He, ha he hadn't seen it yet. But, I, but I'm a force to be reckoned with. When, when you take something from me that doesn't belong to you, you know, and, and that's what he's done. So that's why I say if, if we ever get to the point to where someone, and I did have some people out in Hollywood express some interest in the movie script. They gave a synopsis of it. Um, they hit some points that were not quite, quite accurate, but I didn't argue the point. Just to get it out there and get it reviewed by a producer in Hollywood was important to me because I thought I could... Uh, springboard off of that. So there's been some interest, but not a whole lot of interest in the point to where we talk of an actual contract. You know, I don't know if you've heard, but they recently announced that they're making this movie that's like the story of Neil Bogart and Casablanca Records, and they're talking about uh, Samuel L. Jackson's going to play George Clinton, and uh, D.L. Hughley's going to play uh, Bootsy Collins in this movie. And so you got me thinking now, who are some actors that maybe will play some of the, you know, Dayton musicians uh, when, if that if that comes to be? Yeah, that's true. I heard that also. I didn't hear uh, about Hughley, but I did hear Sam Jackson. He could be a, a good wild George Clinton. Um, I don't know if Hughley can act like Bootsy, but again, maybe maybe he could. Maybe maybe he will. But yeah, I heard that that movie was coming down. But again, um, our story, um, because I was very close to the executives at Casablanca back in in the 70s, but our story is so unique because it's about a small town guy that had a vision that to help local black artists 
get music played on the airwaves that became international. And um, and again, I, I never forget, Satch had a boa constrictor and a, as a pet. And it was about 12 feet long. And it was just a couple years old. And we're back during the 70s where we had those colorful pillows that laid around on the floor. And anytime I would go to Satch's on a Friday night or a Saturday night to sip some wine and listen to music, I always wanted to know where that snake was. So we were all sitting around on the floor, and this young lady had kind of nodded off, and she opened her eyes, and this big old snake was looking her straight in the face. Now, the snake was harmless, but you could imagine what would happen after you had been drinking some wine and and raised up and this daggone animal is looking you right in the face. And it was something out of a Looney Tune cartoon. I mean, <laughs> uh, something I'll never forget. I mean, we just rolled on the floor just because I always wanted to make sure where uh, where the snake was. Marshall Jones uh, lived in Jamestown um, back in 2015. And he had a lady friend come in from California, uh, from Florida, and Marshall lived by himself. So I would leave Central State. It was only about ten minutes from Central State. Grab a six pack. We had a couple cigars. We'd sit out on the back porch on a day like today, waiting till the wife got off, and we just kind of just reminisce. And his lady friend was there, and I had left, and Marshall had this little terrier. And I would tell Marshall, put this terrier on a chain and put him on the clothesline and let him run because he, they, they're, they're real hyper because Marshall was hardhead. And he let this terrier loose in the backyard. Now, we're out in Jamestown, which is kind of like a farm. And this terrier got into a pissing match with a skunk. And the skunk sprayed him. And the little dog came yelping back to the house and Marshall opened up the door, and the little dog jumped right into the girl's lap. <laughs> she started screaming. She jumped up, turned red. She real light, turned red. Got got in the car and drove all the way back to Florida. And <laughs> Marshall's house smelled like skunk perfume for a month. Now that is funky. Yeah, you can't you can't get rid of that real easy. And that was funky. But some of the little silly things that they did, you know, as musicians. Well, the, snake, the snake thing makes me think of the Barquets. They were the ones that always had the snake on stage, right? Oh, yeah. Well, a Barquets emulated a lot of the players' music. Oh, like, yeah. Like if you hear uh, um, Charlie Wilson used to use, oh, girl. Well, that came from Sugar. You know, he would cameo, especially, yeah. Yeah, and cameo and um, Lionel Richie with the Commodores. They emulated a lot of the stuff the players did. Of course, a lot of the rappers did that they admit to now. They emulated a lot of their music. And hey, um, hey, Turk, I know you had a, a very, you talked about these special relationships with Heat Wave and Slave and some others. I knew you had a special one with Roger. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, Roger was a very special individual. He was another Junie, a genius with music. 
And I had known Roger and his family almost as long as I knew Junie. Um, I did the liner notes on their first album, Freedom. And his brother, big brother Larry, was always the manager of the group. And whenever they had a, a record, their first record um, would freedom, Larry would bring it down. Roger was a, a guy would call me and come into the studio to listen to the music, put an ear to the music. They had their, they were phenomenal. They, they did probably more for the community than any of the groups that came from Dayton, Ohio. They had a construction company where they would build homes and they would build them themselves from the ground floor up. They had all the construction crew and they knew how to build and they built some beautiful homes in West Dayton, Ohio as a family under the leadership of Larry, the big brother and um, one of the other big brothers. And Roger did the music. I remember telling Roger when he went out west to do some music with Tupac and Dr. Dre. And when I went to Central State and when I got my doctorate, um, it was I challenged all the gangster rappers on their lyric content, sex, drugs, and profanity. So when I went to Central State, I banned all rap music. That was in 1986. Today, they still don't play it. And so I took a firm position on that in 1982. And I told Roger, I said, look, you know, if you get into some gangster rap, man, you can't count on me to play your music because my position is still the same. Well, Chuck, I'm, you know, I'm not going to do that. Well, that's all well and good. He went out there. They did California Love. Good song. Went double platinum. Roger didn't own it. Uh, Tupac and Dr. Dre owned it. And um, Roger came back and he had found himself another market. He had found the rap market because the rappers could rap, but they weren't, a lot of them weren't producers. And Roger was a producer because they had a, you know, 48 track studio board in the studio you know, in their uh, office area on Salem Avenue in Dayton, Ohio. And again, it it was great going into the studio, listening. What do you think about this, Tuck? And Roger was a spont spontaneity. He had a lot of spontaneity about him. They would just go in the studio and come out with a song that was a hit record, uh, you know. And um, Computer Love, uh, Playing kind of rough, so uh, uh, more bounce to the ounce, and on and on and on. And then he had done something that Stevie Wonder he took it to another level. That vocoder, because Stevie Wonder uh, had come up with that design, but Roger used that vocoder with that tube in his mouth, and that became his signature when he was on stage. But you know. To see him perform live on stage, man, was just amazing. You know, yeah, I got to see him a few times. And they would uh, carry him in from the back on the shoulders playing the guitar. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, Zap still plays today, six months out of the year, probably in Japan. They're very popular in Japan. They still carry on their legacy 
uh, Terry Trotman, Zap, and Lester Trotman, the big brother. As a matter of fact, if you saw on YouTube, um, on one of the shows on the Funk Chronicle, I, in, I interviewed Lester and Zap. And when I interviewed them, I, I pulled out the album. I brought the album to the show. They didn't know I had it because Larry gave it to me 30 years ago. I have the only one in the world, and I did the liner notes on it. The mouths dropped open, you know. And that show, that particular show, won an award regionally, um, Ohio, Michigan, Indiana, and Kentucky. And it won an award, that particular show. So, uh, you know, it, it, it just became an everyday thing, Scott, uh, with me when I was in radio, that when I would leave, I would go into the studio with one of the great artists and listen to the music or music they already had recorded or Turk, what do you think about this? And, you know, it was just natural. And like I said, there were some people that respected it and a lot of people that didn't. And so, um, but I guess that's to be expected in anything. But, you know, the bottom line, we had a great time. There were great musicians. Um, people made a lot of money. I was in Larry Troutman's office and he said, Turk, have you ever seen a million dollars? And I said, no, I haven't. He handed me a cashier's check from First National Bank for a million dollars. Unfortunately, it was made out to Troutman Enterprise. <laughs> Not to me. <laughs> but they, they, they could do that, you know, and, 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 and I admired that in them because I had never seen in my lifetime people with that type of leverage and that type of financial uh, capital. And that, that was a great thing. Turk, why do you think, um, I want to ask uh, two questions. I'll make them separate. Why do you think the Ohio players kind of fell apart in the late 70s? Well, it's, it's easy. Egos, money, drugs, poor management. You know, it's called show business. And I tell anybody that I talk to, if you get into this business, understand the business. You know, there's a book that's behind me on my bookcase called This Business of Music. Pick that book up and read it. Tells you about contracts and royalties and things of this nature. So you won't sign your life away. It's rumored that the Ohio players had $300 million in plagiarism out there. It's rumored. And, you know, the rappers were um, sampling their music and they weren't getting played. I have a lot of respect for Jimmy Diamond, who now owns the group, who was with the second generation of the Ohio players after Greg Webster left. But he had been with them for over 40 years. Um is very level-headed and very business-wise. And he has my 100% respect. Um, I have a lot of respect for Marshall and Satch and Sugar and Pee Wee, but they weren't business, they weren't good businessmen. They were great musicians and great talent, but not good businessmen. And when you're handling something like $30, $40 million, you know, you, you got to know how to handle that. I mean, we were... I was out to Marshall's house, oh, back in the 70s, and we were sitting around. His wife, Shara, had made some neck bones 
and Collie Green. I mean, we would jump, just the three of us. And I'd go out there and we'd sit around and listen to some new music. And we were watching the six o'clock news and the IRS was going into, I believe, Satch's house, taking equipment out on the six o'clock news. And I said, Marsha, I think your house is next. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to leave. I'm going to see, <laughs> you know. And, and, and those were the, th- I, you know, it was rumored. I don't know. They never discussed it with me because I was not in their business that they thought they didn't have to pay taxes. So I said it was rumored. And, and like I said, I was there just for the music. I did not try to manage them. I did not tell them how to uh, do their business or anything. They let me emcee the shows when they were in the area. They paid me my little $100 fee for emceeing. And I was happy, you know, because I was on stage with some of the greatest groups of all time. So I, I just think it was the combination of lack of management, um, egos, and uh, drugs. And one thing that you'll understand is in a group, there's usually only one star. You know, when you got the Temptations, you had David Ruffin. When you had the Four Tops, you had Levi Stubbs. When you had Gladys Knight and the Pips, you had Gladys Knight. And when you got a group of musicians and all of them as talented as they were and are, who was the star of the show? Well, we knew it was Sugar at the time. Um, Sugar's deceased now, but the Ohio players are going on. You know, Roger's deceased now, who was the star of the show, but Zap is going on. So um, you tend to bump heads sometime when you're out there and, and and somebody else wants to get some of the limelight and money. You know who also, I guess, turned out to be pretty good in business is Marvin Pierce, right? I think he got out of music, but I hear he's done pretty well. Marvin um, was a good businessman, had a good business head on it. As a matter of fact, he owned a dealership that's a Lexus dealership in Dayton. I don't know what happened and why he doesn't own it anymore because it's been 30 years ago. They don't even remember um, because of the change of ownership. But Marvin had a very good business head, and and he did some good things with some of the money he earned. And I had a lot of respect for Marvin. Uh, Marvin was a unique um, he had a beautiful home out off of North Main Street, and it's still there today, and it looks like something out of the future. I mean, when you walk into it, the walls are the walls are doors, almost like the White House, and you don't know which is which he would know, but uh, he had that type of mind. He could see into the future. And uh, I had a lot of respect for him. But when you have those big egos, Pee Wee and Junie and uh, Sugar and Satch and Diamond, you know, big, big, big egos. And at one point in time, they all did play together. Dutch Robinson, Robert Ward. You know, they, 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 they clash at some point in time, especially when you're dealing with money. And whoever is, I'm assuming, the lead of the group wanted to get the most money. You know what I always felt about the Ohio players, because they were my very favorite group. Right. 
that they should have been as big and have a legacy equal to Earth, Wind, and Fire. I agree. Um, again, things happened to the Ohio players that held them back that they kind of brought on themselves back in the 70s that held them back that never hit Earth, Wind, and Fire. Earth, Wind, and Fire hit a peak and they stayed at that level the whole, they never dropped off. And every time you saw Maurice and Verdi and and the rest of the group, it was always at the same level. I emceed a lot of shows with Earth, Wind, and Fire. The Ohio play were on like they a song of theirs, roller coaster. They were on a kind of like a roller coaster ride, up and down, up and down. Uh, sometime they were up and sometime they were down. Under Jimmy Diamond now, his leadership, they've been pretty consistent because they're still playing, still performing 40 years later. If that had happened back in the 70s, they would have been on the same level with the Earth, Wind, and Fire. Um, and even the Parliament Funkadelic, as far as that's concerned. Because I think George Clinton is an immense talent. You know, I have some criticism, but I'm not one to criticize George Clinton. I think one group that I'm not sure we mentioned in talking about all those dating groups is Sun. Right. Sun with um, Myron Bird and Kim Yancey and Sean Sandridge um, was a group that had general market appeal from the jump. All these guys were very like and productive. That's why they call them son. Very nice looking guys. And the music they made, they wanted to start it off in the general market. Sun is here, radiation level. And it took a little bit more promotion for them to start off in the general market, even though they called me in the studio to listen to all their music, and even though I played it, they would have preferred to start off into the general market, which they did not all the time. Kim Yancey's out in Texas now. Myron Bird is in London, England. Excuse me, I'm told that they're going to have a reunion and getting back together. Um, I don't know. I, I heard that out of New York. Uh, but they were an immense group, uh, had their unique, and I keep saying general mark, they really didn't have a black sound, okay? They had a kind of a urban general market sound with uh, sun is here, radiation level, things of this nature. You know, yeah, the vocals weren't quite as soulful. Right, that's that's my point. And then there was Dayton. See, there was a group named Dayton, and Sean Sandridge performed. And Dayton did some, had some big hits. They did a remake of uh, Sly and the Family Stone, Hot Fun in the Summertime, which I played. They did uh, The Sound of Music. You know, they had several great albums um, when you check of the group dating on the internet. And they never reached the uh, status that the Ohio players or Roger 
um, reached itself, but they were a great group. Sean Sanders was a graduate of Ohio State, I mean, uh, Central State University, and um, he's still producing today. I'm told they're putting some things together with the Philharmonic, and they, and they called me about it, and he's still producing today. Um, but they just never reached the same record sale plateau that Roger did, or the Ohio players did, or even Heat Wave did. Or Lakeside, you know. yeah. Or Lakeside, yeah, right. And Roger, though, um, collaborated on Sun's first hit, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. They, they, were all, they would all kind of get together. I don't know how much they do it now, because I talked to Zap, and, um, you know, we did have a, a group called, or we do have a group called Fazo which was founded by Satch and Keith Harrison, who was the leader of FAZO or is the leader of FAZO, has a CD out now called One Love. So he's performing uh, around the area. And uh, back in the 70s, he had that tune called Riding High. And it was a one hit uh, tune and, and, and it did pretty well, I guess, for him. I played it and it it's part of the genre from the Solar Dayton, from the artists that came from the, you know, the Dayton town of the Solar Dayton. And uh, just immense talent. I mean, you see these guys perform back then. To see some of them still perform today still brings the great memories of yesterday. You know, as riding high, very unique sound. Nothing, like, nothing sounded like it at the time. Interesting to me is how differently that sounded from a lot of their other tracks that sounded kind of like second-tier Ohio players. But Riding High, to me, had its own thing. Well, Keith Harrison explains, and I was a little perturbed about it, at a seminar at the University of Dayton, Dayton in September of 2018, he said that Satch told him, because Keith said, and these are his words, that he was high when he wrote the song. Do not tell the program director, else they won't play the music. And I'm sitting there listening to Keith 40 years later, okay? Because that song charted in 1976-77, and it charted because I played it. And I think at that time, I was the only one that was playing it. And, and one thing Satch said that was correct, if I had known the song was about drugs, I wouldn't have played it, you know. And then Keith said that it was actually about drugs. That's what he said it was about, but he said it in 2018. He didn't say it in 1978 or 77. So... Um, uh, they did have a unique sound, and I still play Riding High today. Um, I was asked to come back to Central State in um, January of 2018 to do a radio show, Deja Vu. You know, been there before. And so I did a show Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 6 to 9. And on Monday, I would record generic shows. And good thing I did because I left in September. I came back in January 2018, left in 
September 2018, and I'm still on the air. Some of the generic shows, I'm, I'm especially on Saturday. So it's kind of nice sitting back on Saturday listening to yourself on the radio. Um, but and I still play the funk and the, and the Dayton sound and the soul of Dayton. I didn't use the soul of Dayton too much when I was at Central State because I was in Greene County and I was on a state-run radio station. You know, so I I stayed in my lane then. You know, but uh, you know that unfortunately that's going to come up the hard way and you know. I guess that's just part of the game. Somebody thought that they saw something they can make money off of, and that's what they've been doing for the last six years. So, well, why do you, why do you think things started to cool off in Dayton? You know, like in the early '80s. So. Well, I left in 1983. I was lied on by. My music director, Langford Stevens, at the time, who wanted to program WDAO, Bud Crow had been instructed to get rid of me because of that high rating. We were number one in the market. We knocked off the number one country station in the market. And that's part of what's going down now because of discrimination. And so I, I was fired in 1983 and when i was fired from 1983 to 1985 to when wdao was sold the ratings took a drop from a 25-7 share of the market to 8-7 and the owner bud crow saw his radio station losing numbers and he put it up for sale 4.5 4.5 million dollars so he owned an am and an fm he sold them all the new company came in stoner broadcasting was worse than bud crow because bud crow was a mom and pop this was a corporation they did not want wdao as a standalone 50,000 watt so they took the frequency and sold it to clear channel and took the call letters and put them on the AM, abolished the AM talk radio, and took the call letters and put them on AM. AM was 1210 AM, sun up to sundown. So they took a 50,000 watt, three state coverage, black radio station with an 87 share of the market and put it on AM. A black guy by the name of Jim Johnson came up with $700,000. And he's owned it since 1985, 1985, 1985, correct. And um, every now and then I take a peek at the ratings to see what the soul of Dayton is doing. Um, and then I glance down and see if WDAO AM is in there and they haven't ever shown up in, in Arbitron ratings in over 35 years. So, so it was done by design, unfortunately, and you know, and and that's you know that has to come out. That the ugly snake raises head. It has to come out. I mean, I can call names of people, so and I have evidence of everything that I'm telling you about. I have the original bumper sticker. I have the federal trademark. 
I have the copyright of the movie that sold a day and the copyright number. You know, I have the names of the guy who stole Black Guy took it off the Broadcasters Hall of Fame webpage, the image, and the guy who owns the radio station, 98.7, which is a Cox Communication broadcast facility, um, said it was his and he owned the Solar Day. And so he's trying to recopy what I did back in the 70s. I'm not going to say he can't do it. I'm just saying the last six years he hasn't done it. Um, and uh, I had a lawyers in Dayton, Ohio, that turned out to be duds. Um, the only, I, I, spent a, I spent over $10,000 of my own money for copyright infringement and trademark. And all I got was a letter of cease and desist, which the guy ignores. And so um, I have made contact with a female attorney in Washington, trademark and copyright. And I'm just kind of feeling her out right now to see if she's going to be a right fit for me before I jump back in and start spending a lot more money and then wasting it. It's like, unfortunately, it's like pissing in the wind. So, um, well, let me, Turk, um, you know, when you talk about data and, and not, not really getting the recognition and wide exposure for what it was and, and its impact, I think also, though, funk music as a whole hasn't gotten its just due. Don't you agree with that? And if so, why do you think that 200%, is? 200%. Why, why is that? Well, let me tell you the way it was when I first brought it in. George Clinton, James Brown, if you said funk back in 1971, 72, 73, it was so close to the other four-letter word, you would make sure that you didn't slip and say that. That's your broadcast career was over with. And, you know, it didn't come into fruition till a James Brown said, you know, make it funky. Or George Clinton said, we get the funk. You know, so they start pushing the word F-U-N-K. Now, moving ahead 40 years later, rap music has made a big impact on the market. Hip-hop, rap, and gangster rap has made a big impact, and the funk has taken a back seat because of that. Even though a lot of the rap, hip-hop music today comes from funk music. I have one of my students and one kid from Dayton at a radio station, one works for the other in Las Vegas. And I did an interview with them similar to what we did, uh, or what we're doing last year. And they will tell me about music of their time, of their genre, of their age group, where funk was incorporated into that because these guys are in their late 30s, early 40s. So they are, a matter of fact, I, I've entrusted them to the movie script because one, like I said, is a former student, the other's from Dayton, and he knows about the soul of Dayton now because they have access to L.A. and, um, you know, some of 
some of the guys I don't have access to. And you're right. I don't think it, 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 it's got its props. I think it might get some props if, if, the, if the movie came out, but it, I think it will come and go. It'll be popular. And, and then, um, you know, it, it, I compare it to somewhat of the Wright brothers. You know, the Wright brothers could not get a um, permit to fly their plane, my plane in Dayton, Ohio. So they went to Kitty Hawk. Now, I don't know why they couldn't get a permit and who wouldn't give them a permit. And if you look at the back of Kitty Hawk's license plates, they say first in flight. Well, Dayton, Ohio should say both. They say the birthplace of aviation and they should say first in flight because the Wright brothers came from Dayton, Ohio. So somebody 100 plus years ago screwed up big time. What I've been trying to do is make sure that that doesn't happen to my history, you know, or my legacy. Because the story that I told you and everything that I've been saying is true. And nobody could really tell you the same story because I lived it with the guys. I was there with many of them. And I wasn't there to tell a story 30 years later. I was there. I was just having a ball because I was around music that I love, black music funk music, and we knew we had something that nobody else had. But in Dayton, Ohio, the number one station is a big country station. And the last thing they want is to have a Turk Logan back in the market wanting to program again. And I made it clear to everybody, because a lot of the members that are with the big country station are in the Hall of Fame. And I made it clear to them, I'm 70 years late. 70 years old. I have no interest in coming into Dayton and programming and doing something I did 48 years ago. But I will not, under any circumstances, let anybody knowingly make money off of my fame. And that's what they're doing, you know, because of the way Dayton is. And Dayton's a little, little, little bad little market. And I can't, I, I cannot say I can straight it out because I may not even live that long just to straighten it out. It's a bad little market. 